Hey, everybody. I'm Jamin. You're listening to the Happy Market Research Podcast. Our guest today is Susan Fader, keynote speaker and founder of Fader Focus. Susan has run Fader Focus as a business strategist and transformationalist catalyst specializing in qualitative methods and strategic consulting. She helps clients achieve focus and get unstuck, reframing their energies, their confirmational biases, and the traditional ways of segmenting their customers. Susan, welcome back to the Happy Market Research Podcast. I'm very happy to be here to talk with you again. The Michigan State University's Master of Science in Marketing Research Program delivers the number one ranked insights and analytics degree in three formats full-time on campus, full-time online, and part-time online. New for 2022, if you can't commit to their full degree program, simply begin with one of their three course certifications, Insights Design or Insights Analysis. In addition to the certification, all the courses you complete will build towards your graduation. If you're looking to achieve your full potential, check out MSNMU's program at broad.msu.edu slash marketing. Again, broad.msu.edu slash marketing. HubUX is a research operations platform for private panel management, qualitative automation, including video audition questions and surveys. For a limited time, user seats are free. If you'd like to learn more or create your own account, visit hubux.com. Before we get into the core content, I wanted to talk briefly about your speaking. So you have have been a speaker since I've known you anyway, various industry events, but most more recently you've been brought in for corporations to talk to them and their offsites. I'm just curious, like, is this like a trend for your career? What are they bringing you in for? They're bringing me in for uh, really my original thinking of reframing how you think about business challenges, because a lot of businesses are like these cars that are stuck in the mud and the tire keeps spinning and you're doing the same thing. And they need to think differently about their businesses. They're coming out of the pandemic. The whole dynamics of their categories, who their buyers are, how they talk to them has changed. And they want to make sure when they are thinking about business strategies that the baseline assumptions are correct. And that's where I come in. I help them reframe how they think about what the business challenge is, what the opportunity is, and how to look at things more from a customer perspective than what how business units are set up. <laughs> it's funny. It's it is in every way, right? Becoming a better listener. I'm I'm just constantly amazed at how when we do that, we can connect uh, more. And obviously, on a one-on-one framework, but I think it works. I think it works really well from a brand framework as well. But anyway, we'll dive more into that momentarily. So this is the third time that you've been on the show. The first time was on contextual intelligence. The second was on cognitive demographics. And today we're talking about yet another new thing for me, narrative economics. So what in the world is narrative economics and what business question does it address? Okay, so narrative economics is really about stories. And when you think about in the business world of storytelling, it really is seen as an output of how you deliver findings or 
how you talk to the board of directors or CEO, and you have to have a story that has beginning, middle, and end, and you're delivering conclusions. Narrative economics is about storytelling as input. It's about hearing what people are thinking about, and it doesn't have to have a beginning, middle, or end. It could be a song, a poem, a sermon, a joke, but gives you insight of what people are thinking. And so that's what narrative economics is, and it's about storytelling. And I can give you a little more background if you want. Um, yeah, I mean, I, I so it's about storytelling, and so that's the narrative component of it, right? But then right. you have the economics, which is usually, at least from my point of view, you know, is framed on whether that's like, that's usually like market conditions or what drives overall economic outcomes. So let's step back. So behavioral economics, you know, systems one, system two has become really, really big. And behavioral economics came out of the world of financial economics. What uh, social scientists did, they recognized something that was in the world of financial economics and they adapted it, and businesses and market researchers adapted the world of behavioral economics to something that we use. And the underpinning of behavioral economics is that people are irrational, they make irrational decisions. So when um, Robert uh, J. Schiller, who's a Nobel Prize winner in economics, came out with narrative economics in uh, like 2018, and I read the paper, it's, and I realized, wow, this was an idea that we really have to take into business, a way, you know, just the way behavioral economics was transformed. And I have been for the last five or six years, the drumbeat of we have to incorporate narrative economics. And my take is narrative economics should be viewed as the insider, the person who's being studies perspective of why the choice or decision may be rational to that person. And therefore, it reframes how we look at behavioral economics. Behavioral economics, we have to now recognize, and this is what I really feel, is we're making a judgment call on whether a person is rational behavior. We're the outsiders, and we're doing a judgment call on whether they're being rational. Narrative economics gives us the backstory and the perspective of why the behavior might be rational to the person, but not to the observer. And that's why I think narrative economics is so important that we integrate into any business strategy or any business thinking that we are doing. Uh, in, in all transparency, a little out of my depth, my you know understanding of, of economics is very much one of a, a hobbyist right? As, a, as opposed to an academic, but at least my remembering of behavioral economics is, is really around scarcity and why humans are what rather humans will wind up choosing. And that driver ultimately is, you know, what is going to improve them the most or be the best thing for them from their, from their point of view. And so then as I understand it, as you're describing it, narrative economics really feeds the why framework, they're making that specific choice. Yes, it does. And again, the thing we have to recognize is people rationalize behavior to themselves, even if it's irrational. But again, then it's a rational decision on their point. But it also gives us the context of how they're making the decision and the missing link. Because a lot of times when we're judging consumer behavior, obviously we're the outsider 
But at the same time, we don't have the context of, of what's going on, of how they're making it, what other things are impacting. I'll give you an example. You know, when uh, in the Rust Belt, when all these factories were moving to Mexico and all these people were losing $40 an hour jobs and they were offered right. the opportunity to move the company would move them and the people wouldn't move and they were left in areas that had no jobs. And you were like, why wouldn't these people move? They'd rather be unemployed than have all these benefits and you know, $40, $50 an hour jobs. It, that's irrational. However, if you think of a person's personal hierarchy of value and the biggest thing to them is family and all their family lives in that 15 mile radius, then they're going to choose not to move, even though it's going to negatively really impact their life because to them, family is more important, being around mm. family. So that's a rational decision. But if you think about all the articles we read about, how could these people not move? That's an outsized job. So that's why if you understand the narrative of how they're talking, and that's why listening to podcasts about any particular there's podcasts about anything of every, of every demographic. So if you listen to people talk in a podcast or if you read biographies or people, you know, J.D. Vance, who was diselected senator in Ohio, you know, his hillbilly elegy, gave insight, you know, of growing up in the Rust Belt and from Appalachia. And Tara Westover, her book about educating, living off the grid in uh, like Utah, it gives you insight of what their lives are and what their decisions were and where they ended up. And that's very important. I don't think enough business people do that, that they really listen to the uh, stories. It's not a just a tidbit. It's really hearing the context of their life and how and understanding why they make decisions the way they do. Yeah, totally. And, it, and it's interesting that you can leverage digital frameworks. You said podcasts, but it couldn't be. It could be other things too. It could be like TikTok channels or hashtags or what have you. But really, as inputs to help inform your point of view of an audience or a segment. And and it's interesting because you're basically consuming monologues. Uh, or you know, one side, one side of their point of view of whatever it is that they're talking about, what they care about, what their what drivers are, what annoys them, all that sort of stuff. It's also getting back to research and conversations. A lot of times, you know, there's and we've talked about this before. There's more stuff than can fit in the guide, you know, the 15 page guide. Then you have time to talk, you know, have a conversation, and it's this question answer structure. What you really need to do is devote the first 10, 15 minutes of any research interaction you have, allowing the person to share a story. If I am doing research with healthcare professional doctors, I'll ask them in two or three sentences, tell me why you became a doctor and why your specialty. And they light up and, you know, they start sharing, you know, you've, you've touched them and you've gotten into a personal aspect of who they are. And it gives me context of how to have a conversation with them. But if you're doing a consumer project, don't assume you know everything because you've already interviewed this profile, you know, 40 times before. The person you're talking to 
a lot of their decision-making is automatic. So what you need to do is just kind of get them to share their perspective. Like if you're talking about um, making dinner, you know, you you have a food product and it has it's an integral part of dinner. You might say, all right, tell me the story of what you like about making dinner and what you don't, you know, and, you know, tell me, you know, in five sentences and or give me three descriptive words about how you feel about making dinner. You know, you kind of give them a framework because most people don't know how to tell a story anymore. And mm-hmm. so if you give them a frame, you say you have to give them a framework. So if they give you the three words, you say, all right, tell me why those three words. And you get tremendous insight into how they're feeling as opposed to what do you like, what you don't you like. So it, the three words can really uh, jumpstart the conversation. And in ancient Greece, if a guest was at the table, at the meal, their obligation was to share a story with the host, to tell something about themselves. And that was belief you really get to know someone that way. Oh, it's so interesting. I recently did a study on for my blog on uh, Lazy Boy, and I asked a question that was, a video question so people would respond, give me their answers via video. Tell me about your most memorable experience on a Lazy Boy piece of furniture. And I, it was so emotional. The response, I, we had 350 people that took the, that qualified to take the survey and their stories impacted me so much. This year for Christmas, I'm requesting a Lazy Boy right. <laughs> recliner. Because, because it was emotional. You asked yeah. Out them. It was a broad question so they could interpret it in whichever way they wanted. It could have been memorable, could have been how it was delivered, or memorable could have been how they made a repair on it. You didn't put any constraints on what story they were going to do. And most research would say, okay, tell me about the delivery process. Have you had any repairs? Tell me. So that kind of guides them, but you were broad so that they could bring any story they wanted from any aspect of the relationship. And that's a key to narrative economics. You know, and what was so interesting on the, I will pick on this study a little bit more, is that you're right. And the things that surfaced, I don't think I would have ever pulled it out of a, a survey or unless I had asked the question. One of the interesting things was I asked, I got 350 responses, right? So even if I had just done a handful of one-on-one interviews. I don't think I, the findings would have surfaced um, like they did, but but some of the things that surprised me were the experience with the store at the store was so, you know, my, my sales rep was like the favorite, most memorable part of of having the furniture, uh, with the furniture, which you, is counterintuitive, right? You'd think it would be something else. And that was a, one of those was a story of a, uh, one of the sales reps saying, hey, I'll come out to your apartment and check it out, right? And let you know what I think would be a good layout for you. You know, just kind of go, for free, like going out of their way to do that kind of stuff. So that that's very interesting. You said counterintuitive. It, that's like you were going to set, you would normally set guardrails on what you think a memorable story should entail. And that's what many businesses do. do. So if you had set the guardrails and don't tell me about the sales experiences, tell me about your experience having one, you would have missed out. And narrative economics, again, is about them sharing a story with you from their perspective and you not guiding them by the hand on what story they should tell. 
So we've already kind of stepped on this next question, but I'm going to, I'm going to ask it anyway, because I would really like to flesh it out more. How does narrative economics connect to consumer insights? It, I, it's exactly what we just did. It doesn't put constraints on what you're going to hear. A lot of times when you start, think about it, when you're asked a very directed question, it's like you put blinders on and the, and the consumer says, oh, they only want me to answer X, Y, and Z. Therefore, I'm only going to answer X, Y, and Z. And you're kind of putting tunnel vision on the consumer, not allowing them to really tell what they're thinking. You're guiding the conversation. You want it to be unguided, at least at the beginning, so they contextualize it and then you react to how they're telling the story. And that's how you're going to get a lot more out. So qualitative, obviously, in nature, do you see it play out in quant research? Well, it's exactly what you just did with 350 Lazy Boy. I mean, the, the key is with AI, you really in quant to not have an open end video right now is I think ridiculous. And I think you actually should start quant surveys with an open end. Oh, so, 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 on, so on point. So because, on point. because that's how you start understanding their perspective. And then if you want to do a cross tab, you do a cross tab of the answers based on their perspective. Cause again, Businesses tend to segment customers based on what their business unit needs are, but customers might segment themselves differently, put them in groups other than what you would see them in. And by putting an open end at the beginning of a quant and using AI to help you figure it out, uh, I think you would get a lot more insight from your quant. You know, it's funny is because I've been saying this for years, a survey is really just a conversation at scale, right? And finally, technology is getting to the spot where it can analyze unstructured data uh, because nobody speaks in Likert scales. Right. No one speaks in Likert scale. And the other issue is, you know, talking about data and talking about quantifiable data. When you think about Google searches, people tend to search the top 10 or the top five ways things are categorized in that category. But if you think about it, data is historical and that's looking backwards. And if you do that, you don't see what the emerging trends are, you know, because something as simple as brushing your teeth, I I went to a Google presentation, they said there was over a hundred thousand ways where you can, that people talk about brushing your teeth. So if you only do the top 10, you're going you're gonna to miss something. So that's also having a conversation will help you understand what other things you should be looking for in Google searches beyond just the top 10. Oh, that's super insightful. I talked to you a little bit about a project. I mean, I didn't intentionally do narrative economics, but it may have had some overlap. Do you have a specific or favorite project where you love, leverage it for a customer? Oh my God, it's like ask me who my favorite child is. And <laughs> I, have, I, have lots, I have lots of children. Uh, I think it's hard to, your most favorite, because I work in so many different categories and have had so many interesting conversations and, and people who, who have totally surprised me. I, you know, I didn't expect them to say something, but I think one of the most moving ones I had was a project I did with evangelical Christians. And I was hired by a group 
this was at a time, let me just backtrack for a minute. This was at a time right after the Supreme Court had ruled same-sex marriages was legal and marriage that was legal in 50 states. However, in 37 states, it was still legal to fire someone because of their sexual preference. It was still legal to evict someone from their home if they were renting, if they were homosexual. So the objective here was to try to get those laws off the books in those states and not have evangelical Christians, basically to have them not fight it. Not that they need to be advocates, but that they shouldn't be against that move. So what kind we of a de-escalation of the issue. Well, trying to figure out where the minefields were, like in terms of communicating and messaging to the public in terms of voting and legislation, what can you say? How can you say it? Where can you say it? And I did, I must have done 50 one-on-one interviews and we also did groups and we had, I had them tell stories, you know, things. We had an exercise, I'm not going to go into detail, but they, they came in um, and they were prepared to tell a story and then we talked. And I cannot tell you how many times during these interviews, people broke down and cried about, and the thing was, they were very adamant that a marriage was between a man and a woman. And anything that referenced, you know, this was when the case with the uh, wedding cake and everything, and that was my field. You couldn't go anywhere near that. But when you started hearing that people could be evicted from their homes because what they were doing in the privacy of their bedroom, that was not right. And, you know, one person said, as long as they're not, you know, I'm not going to use the word that they use, but on the conference table, why do I care what they do in their bedroom? It's not, how can you throw someone out of their home? Or how could you fire someone? And it was this understanding, this emotion where we were able to separate the, you know, this thing that had been so tightly woven together where homosexuals are destroying America because of the marriage. Oh my God, they're just like me. They need to live in a home. They need a job. How could you do? What would Jesus say? So that was, and then at the end of some of these interviews, people, people would tell me the stories of how a child had come out to them and they didn't speak for them for, for years and years and what wasted part of their lives and what would you, and would I go out with a drink with them afterwards? It it was, it was, there were very emotional interviews and it was, you could just see the battle people were having with their beliefs and family and, and just everything. And that really, really stuck with me. And that was something where it was really about having them tell us stories, this narrative economics approach. And then that, those stories then informed, um, in this case, the evangelicals' point of view on the specific issue of gay marriage and also the specific messaging landmines that would that need to be either avoided or addressed um, for, for easier legislative adoption. Right. So what happened was in the beginning was this open end where they told us the story, and then we actually showed them concrete 
print ads and uh, television, you know, online ads that we could do and how they responded to images. But we had the context, you know, as opposed to when you start out just showing them advertising, they go, I like that because that's a pretty color. Here we had a context of what was emotional to them and they were able to reference that. It came like a lie detector test because they were so, they had told a story from their guts and they then were able to really be articulate where the communication was was working and where it had gone off the rails. And so we got very clear findings as opposed to a beauty t- contest. We usually do when you show them concepts or ads. Super interesting stuff. Well, I appreciate the explana- explanation of narrative economics. It's a new context, a new thing for me. And um, I'm definitely going to be diving into it the application to research um, seems just amazing. And I, I appreciate the tips that you gave, specifically the three words, as a way to get participants to start framing up their stories. Right. And you try, the words should be descriptive words, adjectives or adverbs. You don't really don't want nouns. You want emotional. You want to know how they're feeling. And sometimes it's a little hard, but let them give you the words and then tell me the story behind the words. Don't, you know, you said this word, this word, or this phrase. Okay, help me understand. So you're not going to say, tell me this word, tell me. It's they've given you a framework of it. They have now have a framework and now they can start telling you a story. So what? how do you frame the initial question? I'm going to say, a ter- I'm going to give you a term and I would like you to give me three distinctly descriptive words or phrases that capture how you feel or think about what I'm going to say to you right now. Oh my gosh. I love that. That's so awesome. <laughs> um, perfect. Great. appreciate the clarity and the tactical and the strategy point of this. It's been a super informative podcast, Susan. Thank you very much. Appreciate. So you can see how from uh, when I do this corporate speaking, how it's reframing how people think about business challenges. To say the least. Our guest today has been Susan Fader, keynote speaker and founder of Fader Focus. Susan, thank you very much for joining me on the Happy Market Research Podcast today. It was a pleasure as always. Everyone else, I hope you found as much value in this as I did. As always, screen capture, share on social media, tag me, and I will send you a t-shirt. Have a great day.